0: Hi, I'm Ron Hogan, and welcome to Life Stories, a Beatrice.com podcast, where I talk to memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. My guest today is Josh Hanagarni, and he is the author of The World's Strongest Librarian, A Memoir of Tourette's, Faith, Strength, and the Power of Family which has just come out by Gotham Books, and I'm really thrilled to have you here, Josh. Thank you.
1: Oh Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you.
0: So this is a really wonderful book, and the thing is is that there's a couple of different stories going on in here, and I want to try to touch upon a bunch of them in the time that we have with our talk. First off, I guess let's start by you being a librarian with a love of books that clearly goes all the way back to, uh, to the beginnings of your childhood.
1: Absolutely. As far as I know, my parents said they were taking me to the library before I was born. And I never really had a chance not to love the place. It was just part of the day. Every day my mom took me to the library and it never occurred to me that not everyone loved to read. Not everybody loved libraries. It was really just always a part of the day. And that led to, you know, the ability to read stories makes me want to tell stories.
0: And that eventually is one of the things that led to the book. I think it was when you were caught up in your reading as a small child, that your mother first noticed the ticks, and sometimes that, and back then when you were, I guess five or so, they they weren't really sure what was going on.
1: Yeah, the, the the very first time they told me they ever noticed it was when I was on stage at a first grade Thanksgiving play, and it was something about the bright lights coming on, and that's kind of when it kicked in. And after they had seen it that night, whether or not it had been happening before that is when they started noticing it all the time, and it just never really stopped again. And so, yeah, when I, when I was reading, when I was walking, when I was eating, just whatever. And at the time, I mean, honestly, for the next 15 years or so, it would never really be much more than a nuisance, because it wouldn't get bad until I was about 20.
0: When the it first started manifesting itself, your father, there's a great passage in here where he... Somebody tells him it sounds like Tourette's, and he's like, yeah, it's Tourette's. But you never really got it checked out at the time because your parents weren't really interested in going to the doctor. It wasn't until about a decade later, I think, that you actually got a Tourette's diagnosis.
1: Yeah, and and for anybody who's listening, if you're not familiar with Tourette's, uh, it's involuntary movements and involuntary noises. And what I was doing as a child, the time period we're talking about right now, is I was just blinking my eyes a lot more than I needed to and blinking very forcefully and curling my lips around, kind of craning my head around. So they were just seeing me make all of these weird little movements. Uh, it wouldn't become vocal until I was in junior high, which was, oh, you know, eight, eight grades later. And then for most of high school, it wasn't that big of a deal. I think most of the people who actually liked me would have said it was kind of endearing because it wasn't something at the time that broke my body or really caused me any serious distress it was just kind of obnoxious and tiring sometimes and uh, I, i didn't get diagnosed until i was a freshman in high school and that was after i was at a at an away basketball game and the basketball game came down to me shooting free throws over and over at the end of the game and every time i'd be on the free throw line the entire crowd would chant twitch 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 and after that we won the game by the way But after that, I said to my parents, I need to know what's going on. So they never really saw the point of having it be on my mind until I brought it to them. And once I brought it to them, you know, it took a matter of days before we'd gone to the neurologist. And took him all of five minutes to diagnose me.
0: And that's something that's worth emphasizing um, for people who don't necessarily know much about the condition, is that there's a wide range of ways that Tourette's syndrome or Tourette's manifests itself. Yeah, you know, the stereotypical image, of course, is of the you know the, the crazy person like swearing to himself constantly in the corner. But there is a huge range of vocal or physical or 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 motion-related expressions in, in or, or how these tics can manifest themselves. Mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely, uh, it's a. Uh, it, it comes down to two things. It's either involuntary movements or noises or both, but that can sound and look like a lot of different things. Last year I spoke at Gettysburg at a camp for kids with Tourette's and it was fascinating. That was the first time I'd ever been around a big group of people with Tourette's. So there were all the kids, you know, blinking, shrugging their shoulders, the strange little tics, up to a man named uh, named Andrew who Oliver Sacks has actually studied and Andrew had the coprolalia, and that is the yelling of obscenities. And it was really fascinating to see all of us doing our own things and think, if this actually all comes out of the same place, it's, real. it's It's even weirder that the kid blinking his eyes too much also has the same disorder as Andrew and as me. And the funniest thing about it all was you could watch the ticks jump from person to person. And when I asked the parents about this, they said, oh, yeah, we always leave this camp with new ticks, and then after a couple days, it's kind of back to business as usual, whatever that is for each person, and it happened to me too. Really kind of funny.
0: There's a, another passage in the book where once it starts kicking in, and you're you're laying out the, where you're going to say, it's like, look, from this point on in my story, just assume that this is going on constantly. Whenever I mention a new tick, it stays in the lineup. Yeah, pretty much. Yep. Yeah.
1: Uh, did you read a prayer for Owen Meany? I did. I went. I, I tried book. a lot of different ways to try to figure out how am I going to keep the ticks on people's mind or have them know what's always happening. And so I thought, like, maybe it could be like the Owen Meany thing, where all the ticks are in capital letters or something. And everything I came up with, it was so dumb. It just, it felt like the the experience of reading it would get as obnoxious as the experience of having the ticks. So yeah, that was that was pretty much it. Once they're there, they're all stacked on top of each other, and you can just assume that's how it's going.
0: When you were dealing with this in your adolescence and into your young adulthood, the story is further complicated by the fact that, particularly at that period in your life, you're going through a very immediate, a raw and immediate crisis of personal faith, in that having been raised in the Mormon church, uh, you were coming up at the age where it was time for you to go on your, your mission. Mm-hmm. And with everything else that was going on in your life with the Tourettes, I mean, this raised a lot of questions for you about whether you felt that you were prepared to do this.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it, and it didn't really go bad until I was about halfway through my mission. So for the first time, I, I actually felt like I was doing everything right, and I was where I was supposed to be. And that's where everything just went as wrong as it would ever go. And it, it, uh, it posed some pretty predictable questions, you know. When you're faithful, you tend to see good things as rewards, you tend to see bad things as punishments, and that was very much the way I thought at the time. And so I I really struggled with that. And when I came home, I I continued to struggle. And um, it just never really stopped until I was almost all the way out, which is kind of where I'm at now. But uh, pretty pretty interesting stuff. Uh, Not questions that other people don't have, of course. I think these are the most important questions we can ask themselves. The prompt to start asking was a lot different in my case.
0: I think one of the things that is striking about the world's strongest librarian is that, I mean, there's a definite subgenre of apostate Mormon memoirs, let's say. Absolutely. <laughs> mm-hmm. This does not really fall into this. This is really a story about someone who was raised in a faith and has come to a point in his life that he is not able to hold that faith as fervently as he did when he was young. But you really still do have like a, a very profound respect for and admiration for a lot of what you grew up with in the church. Yeah, I think so. I don't think it's ever as simple as
1: the debate between faith and reason. I I believe in reason more than I believe in faith, I'd say, at this point. But pure reason does not address the longings and the the needs I feel like I have that I wasn't always able to explain. And I don't feel like it's my place to judge anything that gives somebody else peace, and as long as they'll not tell me how I should be living. I very much live and let live. I I do believe that there is a a cost that I am willing to pay for curiosity, and that was ultimately kind of what brought me here. Growing up, I felt like I, I had X amount of questions available to me, and I could be as curious and passionate as possible within these parameters. And it wasn't that I didn't ask questions about things like like evolution, for example, because I wasn't supposed to. It just didn't occur to me to ask. And as somebody who prided themselves on being curious and being skeptical, it was kind of a rude slap to realize the fraction of questions I'm able to explore is so tiny compared to what's out there. And that's what I mean when I say. I'm, how I think has become a lot more important to me than what I think. Mm-hmm. I think that's generally interesting in most people. And so that's kind of where it gets left in the book. I'm no longer willing to be in a position where I need to say I know things I don't think I actually know. Doing something because it makes you feel good can be a good reason. Actually believing in something simply because it makes you feel good can be a dangerous thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that's just, that's just kind of where it's at. I'm no longer sure what I think it's possible to actually know.
0: And one of the refreshing things about getting to that point is that, you know, when you were talking to your church bishop about these doubts and you're expecting, you know, to have that sort of like, you know, that pull to be brought back into the fold. It's like, you know, come on, man, pull it together. And he's, and he basically tells you, it's like, yeah, sounds like you've got a lot of questions. You need, you need to face them. And, and, you know, and my
1: worry about that was not unfounded. Becoming, I mean, the church is made of people. You know, And just because a guy is suddenly a bishop, he brings his own personality to that, and everybody will handle these... I mean, they practically do nothing but have tough conversations with people who are in varying levels of emotional crises. And I'm sure I could have gone to 10 other people that day in different wards and, and would have gotten more of the. come on, you know this is right. You've got to get back in here. You're better than this. Mm-hmm. I happened to have a bishop at the time who just couldn't have been more kind and said, wow, that... That sounds hard. If I can help, let me know. And it was really nice for me to have a, a member of the church, a bishop, no us say, There's no magic answer. You know, it sounds like you're doing what you can do.
0: One of the other things that happens in this book, circling back to, to you willing to talk about, like, you know, admitting what you don't know and asking the questions to figure out things. In the latter half of the book, uh, when you're trying to get ah. the ticks under control, well, I, let's backtrack a little bit there and talk about how weightlifting. And physical training as a broader subject, how that has played into your attempts to regulate what's what's been going on in your life. Well, when I was about twenty, when I came home from my mission, I, I
1: weighed about a hundred pounds less than I do now. I weigh about two sixty right now, and I was I was still six seven at the time, and it was because my body was convulsing so badly I couldn't keep food down, and so I started this really scary period of weight loss. And my dad took me to the gym in in Elko, Nevada and said, if nothing else, you know, we can help you put some of the weight back on, I hope. And what I realized when I went to lift, and I was just weak as a kitten, was that uh, that it was the only time I ever felt like I had total control over my body. There is a misconception that the, the weights actually improved things. It generally made the tics worse. If I went and lifted, I was worse afterwards. But I would feel in control during the lifting, and my dad... Said at one point, if you, if you're in a situation you can't control, all you can do is introduce something into it that you can control. And that just happened to be the weights was what I latched onto. And when I travel and I, I speak to the groups of kids with disabilities, the ones who really seem to be thriving, they have something they're always getting better at that they want to practice. And not only that, they can measure the progress and show you. It's really hard to isolate Tourette's and experiment with different things in a vacuum. But you're either stronger today than yesterday or not. You're either smarter today than yesterday or you're not. So when I find something that helps me in any way, I, I tend to get in all the way. And, and so that has kind of progressed through through my 20s, and I'm 35 now, where the weights became more and more important to me. I started finding more and more people to learn from. And it still really takes a toll, because if I work out, I tend to have worse ticks. But it's just... You know, there's no downside to taking care of your body in <laughs> mm-hmm. any case. So don't think you need to have to rest to go to the gym
0: or to do or some develop the habit, yeah. you know? yeah, or to do some of the other. At some point, it, it wasn't just going to the gym. Pretty soon, you, yeah. you you write about like you know you get into kettlebells and, mm-hmm. and there's like a whole subculture associated with with kettlebell training.
1: Yeah, there's there's a kettlebells. There's a group of guys that they they don't call themselves this, but most people would refer to as like the underground strongman movement, kind of like the vaudeville guys who are bending the stuff and lifting the globe, circus dumbbells and stuff like that. I'm currently focused on Highland Games. When people ask me how strong I am, my numbers are never going to impress anybody who's seriously strong. Although I'm way stronger than most people who don't train, um, and it's because with the ticks and how physically violent they can be and how how fast i can move i'm always injured somehow so i do not get these uninterrupted stretches of training chasing some number you know in the squat or the bench press or anything right i'm always starting over at something i'm always changing direction. so the point is always stronger today than yesterday but yesterday's number might get smaller and smaller as opposed to bigger and bigger
0: talking about injuring yourself you you, you do right about how it's like i mean you gave yourself a hernia Of your tics at one point.
1: Yeah, just from screaming. And that was when I was starting to lift, and it wasn't even from the stupid lifting. It was just from screaming.
0: That's right. This is during the the period where you were screaming, but you were putting Botox into your your vocal cords.
1: That was right after the hernia. hernia. Okay, that's right. Because I got so scared that I was going to just keep screaming and bust the incision or keep getting hernias or, or whatever. And it was almost impossible for me to be out in public at the time. So I started getting botulism injections in my vocal cords so I could be back out in public, hopefully not have to be as scared about more hernias, and, and then I could try to go to school a little bit. I don't know the whole science of it, but it paralyzed the vocal cords. So it made it so I couldn't scream, but I couldn't talk much either, I could just barely whisper a little bit. Mm. And it helped with some things, It got kind of a lame workaround, but it got me through the next couple of years.
0: Mm. And ironically, this is when you met the woman who would become your wife when you yes. could barely talk.
1: <laughs> yes. Uh, Jeanette and I had been married for about eight months before she heard my whole speaking voice. I don't know if I'm a great listener or not, but however good I am, it's because of those two years where I just couldn't say much. I mean, um, and every five weeks or so, I'd go get the shots again, and then it would just be gone. It's also when I started to write, because I realized one of the reasons I love conversations as much as I do is that uh, it's kind of when I I learn what I think about things as you talk through ideas with people. And once I just couldn't really do that verbally, I I wanted to write and I needed to see it on paper.
0: And when did the, the switch come from writing on paper as you were originally to you doing a blog, which is how the World's Strongest Librarian started out?
1: I, that was in, it was about four years ago. And I honestly, I kept losing my training notebooks where I would write down my workouts. I'd keep a week's worth of journals, and the notebook would vanish. I just couldn't keep track of them. So the earliest version of the blog was literally just pretty much numbers of workouts, so I wouldn't lose them because they'd be on the server. And soon enough, it was hard for me to just write about the workouts. I Because other people in the fitness world were checking in on what I was doing, and they'd comment, and we'd talk about training. And so soon I was telling stories or talking about what I was reading. And then then I started writing about Tourette's a little bit, and that's when it started to get a little more attention. And then after about two months of that blog that I never planned on anyone reading, Seth Godin sent me an email and just said, Oh, you should be writing a book. I'm sending this to my agent. And so 48 hours later, that was also my agent. And when she (laughs) said, So what's the book? I said, What book, (laughs) basically? Because I had not conceived of any of this and I never thought anyone would read the blog but that's that's how the blog started.
0: And so when your new literary agent comes to you and says, "What's the book? How did you hit upon what the book became?
1: Well I told I mean it took four years. I mean I told her, well, here's kind of what's going on. Here are the intersecting threads in my life that some people seem to think are quite interesting altogether. And we threw together a proposal pretty quickly and received a modest offer that I felt okay about turning down. They just wanted a mass market paperback that was goofy stories about Tourette's. But at this point I was I was pretty high on it all. I'm like, Yeah, you know Seth, Seth wrote to me. He <laughs> and so I thought the next offer will surely come immediately. Things are going so well. And then like Three more years went by with nothing (laughs) until it finally sold to Gotham as we uh, had retooled and retooled the book proposal. And during this whole time, certain things were changing. The Tourette's was getting better. Things were changing with Church. And so I wasn't sure exactly what the story was. I'm still not entirely sure it's been told in the best possible way. You know, I just chose the way I wanted to do it and did it. But, yeah, it took four years after getting that agent,
0: you know, for us to finally be sitting here today talking about it. As you just said, like a lot of developments in your life during that period too. Well, Uh, it was
1: originally going to be about how I had cured myself because when I sold it, I was in the middle of this patch where I I pretty much hadn't had any ticks for a year based on some experiments I was doing with this, this guy named Adam Glass, who was a strong man in the book who got me into some of the fringe stuff. And then it all came back worse than ever. I'm far worse today than I've ever been. But it originally was going to be like a, kind of a methods book about, look, I cured myself, and here's maybe what you can try. I had no idea when I started that it would end with me being way worse than I'd ever been.
0: But just the euphoria of that period mm-hmm. when after training with Adam, and it, training is, I mean, it's partly the right term, but it was really just, I mean, you went up to the guy's house for a week, and and he basically talked to you about what was going on and showed you a couple of things and then sent you home and said, okay... You know work on this, yeah,
1: Adam is hard to describe it's that i I wish he were here. Adam has told me he's autistic and and he can see if, if he has like a gift of things he can do. he can see the way people move and tell where their body hurts, and then he can generally recommend another movement that will suddenly make your body stop hurting, and this has just kind of been his fixation since this brain injury he had in Iraq, and when he was able to look at my ticks, he would just see movements. And he'd say, here's how we might balance out that movement with a different movement. I I won't pretend to understand it all. But yeah, he did give me some things to try. And that is what led to me having this year off. But it's just kind of a moving target. At that point, even though I thought I had done it, I had Tourette's for 32 or 33 years, and I had one year without it. And it was still in me. It just kind of moved around or something. And it found a way to come back out. And so what was working at the time stopped working. But what I got out of that period of relief, is that when it sets in on a bad spell now, it doesn't come with this sick feeling of dread of when will this stop? Because I don't feel like I just have to wait it out anymore. I remember what it was like. And now it feels more like, what am I not seeing? What am I not asking? What am I not tracking? What else could I try? And that has been a very precious gift. Again, there are now more questions available to me than there were back at the time when when I thought that we have asked all the questions doctors can ask. Now there are no more questions to ask. I just got to white
0: knuckle it. There's a passage where <laughs> you're describing how our normal baseline of day to day living of, of how things are going on and imagine an outburst um, like yours and then imagine if those outbursts were going on constantly and basically became the new norm so that it's like what, what you were describing is that suddenly now you had the ability to, to, to really feel like what feeling, quote unquote, normal was like.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, it freed up some space to think about other things. Mm-hmm. I don't want anybody to give the impression that I, I think I'm suffering worse than anybody else. We've all got our unbearables and you don't have to look very far to find somebody who's suffering worse and handling it better. So, so it's not a contest, but yeah, I, I remember what it was like to feel normal and I think I can get back there. And that is something I didn't have before.
0: I think the way you describe it, it's also very helpful for you in terms of you're a father now. When your son became of the age where it was a concern, keeping an eye out for the early signs, you didn't feel helpless, or or you didn't feel as helpless.
1: Not, not as much. Yeah. I mean, I, <laughs> I have definitely done some lake work and paid attention and tracked a lot of things, whether or not that will actually be useful to anyone else including myself in the future in the same way. So yeah, my son Max, he, he had started what having what I thought were ticks at about age two and a half. I'm happy to say that in the last two years or so, I don't think I've seen anything that looks like it. So it's possible he was just mimicking me. Uh, it's possible that he is in a down period. Uh, we, we just don't know. And it's nice not to know because uh, there aren't any signs of it right now. So hopefully that'll be the last we'll have to say about that.
0: You talked a yep. little bit about you know, trying to figure out how to put your life story together. And so I'm interested in, because, I mean, you have spent your whole life reading and love, you know, loving books, whether specifically there were any memoirs or memoir writers that you looked at and were like, you know, that really spoke to you. My favorite memoir
1: is The Liars Club by Mary Carr. You'll find a lot of people who will agree with that. I actually just, just because it popped onto my desk, I read Wild while I was writing the book. And I was struggling to figure out, like, how much of the bad stuff do I talk about without getting tedious? And when I was reading Wild, I actually sent Cheryl straight an email that I, she may never have even seen. It just said, thanks for writing Wild. I stopped worrying about how, how screwed up I thought I was. I didn't deal with anything like you did. And then I just thought, you know, I, I think I'm overthinking a lot of this. So I I love I love Wild. I love The Liars Club. This Boy's Life by Tobias Wolf. Wonderful. I like a lot of Augustine Burroughs stuff. I don't seek out a lot of memoirs, but somebody will often say, who knows me, I think you will really like this, and and, I, and that generally tends to be the case.
0: What sort of stuff do you tend toward on a regular basis? I know you're a huge Stephen King fan, for example.
1: You know, a lot of my love for Stephen King is based on nostalgia and affection. I mean, I, I have such great memories of being a kid reading the newest Stephen King book, and I still read them all. But you can enjoy things as a child at a at a pitch and intensity. It it makes me sad. I just, I don't think I'm capable of enjoying anything as an adult the way a kid can enjoy something. I will read. I'll try just about anything. One of the funnest things about working at the library is I'm always exposed to everything new. And I'm always surrounded by readers with the other librarians. A lot of stuff just appears on the desk. A lot of stuff is recommended to me. And I certainly have my favorites, but as a librarian, I also kind of get to be a fan of every author and every book professionally, which is wonderful. Like I'd rather have somebody reading something than nothing, and so I can find a way to support every author, which I like. I would say right now I'm reading more nonfiction than fiction, and that's rare. I'm not sure why it has changed, but I'll I'll try to spot anything.
0: And I imagine that the uh, the librarian community has probably been pretty supportive of you as a librarian slash author.
1: Yeah, they. I, I mean, to an almost embarrassing degree in Salt Lake City, I can't stand seeing pictures of myself, and it's pretty hard to get away from right now. I'm very grateful, and they are having a lot of fun with it. It's been funny to write the book and realize I have not changed in any way. I am still just me. And everybody else is starting to act different (laughs) around me. As long as I'm still just some guy who works at the library, as long as that's true, I think that's how I'll still feel. And that's why I don't have any plans to
0: leave. And I'm sure, like, for the patrons, you are probably still just that guy who works at the library. (laughs) Pretty
1: much. I mean, it's it's a lot easier. I do a lot of speaking all over the country, and it's a lot easier for me to fly into another city and, like, for an hour or two pretend to be the man. And if people are there, they came to see you and they know that somebody flew me in and i'm there to talk to them for whatever reason whereas in salt lake people who have known me for years like patrons and staff they'll they'll see the press or like see the new yorker thing and say wait what you <laughs> they say i know i know i know i know it'll be over soon so,
0: so. What, you had a blog? (laughs) Yeah. So with one book under your belt, obviously a real love for going out and finding information and, and writing about the things that you're learning, is there a second book?
1: I will be writing one, whether or not, I mean, no one's promised me anything yet. I think my contract actually said, we can't have that discussion until this one is published. I'll be writing one way or another. And the response has been so great that I hope, I
0: really hope so. Great. Well, we will be keeping an eye out for whatever that might be. And in the meantime, I'm encouraging you all to read Josh Heinegarni's The World's Strongest Librarian. As I say, it's just out from Gotham Books. I think you all will really enjoy it, whether you are interested in librarians, physical training, learning about dealing with Tourette's, or dealing with religious faith. There are, as I say, there are so many wonderful stories in this book, and they're all bottled up in this one guy. So go look for that. This has been Life Stories. I'm Ron Hogan, and I hope you'll join me for another podcast soon. Thank you.